All right, we have been exploring the book of Ephesians, and uh, we are in chapter 5 right now. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to just spend a few moments exploring some of the next verses that we, uh, in, in our study, before we celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper together. And... Um, In Ephesians chapter 5, it begins with an instruction for us to be imitators of Jesus, that our life, our attitudes, our conduct is to look like Jesus. And the goal of our life, if we're to be a follower of Jesus, the goal should be to become more and more like Jesus every single day. Well, today, as we unpack that a little bit, we're going to see how um, the Lord is using some, some illustration to help us understand that. And he's also giving us some very clear direction that there are some things that should never be part of our life if we're a follower of Jesus. There's some things that maybe were a part of our life before Christ that never should be a part of our life after Christ because they will damage our witness. They will also damage our relationship with the Lord. And so um, I want us to, to jump in, but I'm going to just take one more moment of prayer um, because I want the Lord to speak and not me to speak. So Father God, you alone are the desire of our hearts. In this place today, we desire to encounter you and you alone. Cleanse our minds of distraction. Lord, help us to set aside the duties that lay ahead of us in the day and in the week. And would you give us a glimpse of your immeasurable goodness and glory. Father God, I acknowledge that words are thin. They are only a hollow frame unless your Holy Spirit comes and fills them with power, with meaning, and with the work that penetrates our hearts. So Lord, we ask that you would speak. We ask that you would ignite us this day with a desire to be more like Jesus and a desire to see you be lifted up so that others may find hope and life in you. Thank you in advance for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, we're given this instruction, and I've encapsulated it to this point. Um, God has called us to be light, and, but to walk as light, you and I must exit the shadows. We must step out of the shadow in order to be able to shine. I don't know if you've thought much about light. Light, to me, is, is absolutely incredible because here's, here's one truth you need to hold on to about light. Light always conquers darkness. Darkness can never, ever conquer light. It doesn't matter how dark a room is. If you bring a light into it, it will always break through the darkness. That's what God is calling us to do. This, um, on Friday, uh, Becky and I and our sister and um, our husband John went to, um, um, to Terezin and, and we were there at the concentration camp and I was most captured by the isolation cells that were there. 
by the darkness, the light deprivation that was there. And I thought, man, what a picture oftentimes of our world and what a picture of how we feel. Sometimes we feel like we're surrounded by darkness. If you were to be imprisoned in a cell where the window was blocked, there was no light coming in, think how your heart would yearn, would desire the smallest of lights and how it would bring hope. When Jesus says you and I are the light of the world, it means that we are victorious and he's telling us how to be victorious. Because here's the thing, you can never turn on the darkness, you can only extinguish the light. Light is always victorious. So to walk as light, we must exit the shadows. Here's how um, it states it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's, a, that's who we are, that your life and my life, just like this candle here set within a frame of darkness is light. That's what he's saying you and I are in this world, that we are the light of the world and that Christ should shine through us in everything that we do. It says, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. When you and I seek to walk in the light, when we seek to please the Lord, to do his will, our lives will shine. They will shine with his presence, with his pleasure out of us. The truth is, though, we live oftentimes in a world that is filled with darkness, with brokenness. And God has called us to shine into that to look like Jesus, to be imitators of him. And here's here's what I want to ask you. Are you a law-abiding citizen or are you a light-abiding Christian? There's a big difference between those things. Certainly, we want to obey the laws because those are good for society, they're good for us, they're honoring to the Lord most of the time. Um, there, may, probably, there may be some exceptions, and, and throughout history we've seen that, but there's a great difference between being a law-abiding citizen and a light-abiding Christian. The law can only contain evil, but light exposes and defeats evil. That's why he's calling us to something higher. And in this passage, as we look at the things that we're to turn from and we're to turn to, he gives us some requirements. He says that to walk as light requires a pure life. There should not be anything that is immoral about us that's even named. There shouldn't be any suspicion about our character or about impurity. It's what it tells us in the middle part of of verses four through seven. Also, to walk as light requires that we have thankful lips. 
that the conversation that we engage in is that which builds up others, not which tears them down. To walk as light means that we need to have a discerning mind. We need to understand what the Lord's will is in any given circumstance. We want to seek his desires, his purpose. And finally, walking as light requires a desire above all else to please God. Here's how verse 15 puts it. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, I want to give you three truths that that I hope will help connect some of these um, pieces together. The first one is God's will for you and will for me is to make the best use of our time for his purpose and his kingdom. It's really as simple as that. God, what do you want to do in me and through me that will accomplish what you want this day? That's his will for you and I. And it's not as complicated as we sometimes think it is. The second truth that we'll see out of this is that light will only overcome the darkness if we shine like Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this in terms of, um, because there's a contrast here. Uh, There's the light of the world, which is Jesus, and found in a relationship with him. But where does our culture, does our society look for light? And, and light, I'm using this metaphorically. I'm not talking just about the sun and, and it's shining. But where does it look for direction? Where does it look for clarity? Where does it look for information? It tends to look at the media. And, and the media can be something that is used for, for great good, or it can be something that is used for great evil. Part of what made things like happened in concentration camps possible was information was used and twisted in such a way, a lie was told so often that people began to believe it and embrace it. So we need to be discerning about the information that we look at. And I want to tell you that one of the things that I've, I've noticed is that great movements in history are often, in fact, I believe always, accompanied by advances in media. The Reformation and the Enlightenment, neither one of which would have happened without the invention of the printing press. The printing press enabled the Word of God to be translated and distributed into language after language of the people. But also, the printing press allowed the Enlightenment, the philosophy that human reason alone was above everything else and could even take the place of God for that message to be sent out to more and more people. So the media itself is is neither good or bad. It depends upon how it's used. In the same way, we can see advances in media, how it has advanced culture in good things and in bad things. We can see things like Sharam works for um, Radio Free Europe. How incredible has this organization been over the years in proclaiming truth into areas where truth was suppressed. It's done an amazing job. That work is incredible. The scripture tells us that as 
the return of the Lord gets closer, that information will increase. I want you to think about how much information you and I are exposed to compared to just a few years ago. Or if you really want to like go back in time to almost to prehistoric time, think about it when Drew was a child. You know, when I was a kid, I mean, how little information did we, we only had newspapers and radio stations with really strange-sounding letters like W-O-W-O. That was our, our station in our home for Becky and I. Whoa, whoa. Doesn't that just, don't you just want to tune in? Let's turn to whoa, whoa. Yeah, and at Christmas time, they would ring um, pay phones. I know none of you know what a pay phone is anymore, but they would phone pay phones, and if you heard it ringing and you went to the phone and you went, ho, ho, whoa, whoa, you could win a prize. I never, I never won. I'm so, so sad. But anyway, in, information will increase. This is what it says in Daniel chapter 12. He says, and those who are wise shall shine like brightness of the sky above, and those who turn, to mit, um, turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. In a time, in other words, what this prophecy is saying, at a time when there is an amazing amount of knowledge, God's truth is going to be revealed in a more powerful way. And I pray that is what is happening. But we need to recognize just how powerful the media is. Experiments conducted by researcher Herbert Krugman reveal that when a person watches television and, and other types of screens would apply in this, brain activity switches from the left hemisphere to the right hemisphere of the brain. The left hemisphere is the seat of logical thought. Here, information is broken down into its component parts and can be critically analyzed. The right brain, however, treats incoming data uncritically, processing information in holes, leading to emotional rather than logical responses. The shift from the left brain to the right brain activity also causes a release of endorphins of the body's own natural opiates. Thus, it is possible to become physically addicted to your screen. I know that's surprising to some of you to hear that, but it's a physiological change that happens within us. We need to be careful about the information that we take and not allow it to become like a drug, but instead to be discerning and examining it. Screen light is quickly becoming the light of the world around us. But we are called to shine the light of Jesus into the lives of others. That's why he tells us to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And that brings us to our third truth. Love is the lamp that shines the light of Jesus Christ into the darkness. Love is is the lamp that shines the light of Jesus Christ into the darkness. It is the most powerful thing you and I can do. We are to walk in love. And then verse 8 um, uses that same idea by saying we are to walk as children of light. 
The two go together. They are simply two illustrations of the same thing, of how we are to shine into the world around us. Our love for God should be reflected in our love for others and shine forth the light of Christ into the darkness. Not our programs, not our morality, not our worldview, not our political position. All those may be important, but what is most important is that we love others as Christ has loved us. We need to live as light. And we need to shine the love of Christ in the lives of others. Last night I was, I was reflecting on this and, and I was drawn back to the story uh, in John chapter 8 of the woman caught in adultery. And if you're not familiar with the story, what happened was that there were some religious leaders there, and they were trying to challenge Jesus, and they brought to him, they literally drugged to him, a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now, there's all kinds of questions surrounding that circumstance, but the first question I always ask in my mind is, what happened to the man? How come he got off? I mean, that doesn't seem very, very fair, because he's not there. Um, And there was clearly... um, an agenda on behalf of these religious leaders to try to trip Jesus up, and they cared nothing about the woman. But Jesus' response to this woman is incredibly instructive. It shows us how we are to live as his love in the lives of others as well. John chapter 8, verse 6 and 7 says this, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. You see, they were ready to stone her to death, to carry out capital punishment upon her life because she had been caught. Well, here's the thing that struck me so powerfully about that story this time. The God of the universe, Jesus Christ, When he sees a woman who clearly is guilty, there's no denying the fact she was guilty of this sin. Think about how the God of the universe responded to her. He knelt down, most likely beside her, where she would have been lying, crying, into the dirt and begins to write. We don't know what he wrote, But the God of the universe knelt down with one who was guilty. He brought himself down to her level. He knelt with her. But what is more is then it says he stood up, meaning that he not only knelt down with her in her position, in her guilt, he stood up and stood for her in her condemnation. He stood as an advocate for her before her accusers. And then the next verse goes on and says, once the accusers dropped their stones, Jesus knelt down again with her and asked her, where are your accusers? And she said, there are none. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. He knelt down there to lift her back up, and he says, now go and sin no more. Do you realize that is what Jesus Christ does for each and every one of us? 
He kneels down in the dirt, in our guilt. And then he stands up to defend us when we're condemned by the enemy. And then he leans back down and lifts us up to find our new identity, our new life in him. That is love. Isn't that beautiful? Think that the God of the universe didn't just do that for that woman. He did it for me. He did it for each and every one of us. That's the beauty of the gospel. I'm not going to get very far today. Let me do the second point, and that hopefully will, will help to illustrate this as well. To walk as light, we need to love like Jesus. We need to step out of the shadows and not be afraid to enter into the brokenness of lives around us. We need to be willing to kneel down with those who are guilty, who are condemned, and identify with them, love them, not judge them, but to meet them in the same way that Jesus did. That brings me to the second point. To walk as light, we must practice the most powerful spiritual tactic of spiritual warfare, and that is loving our enemies. Because that's what Jesus did. The scriptures declares that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us because we had begun to get a little bit better and we'd started to earn it. He took us when we were as far away from him as possible and he said, I'm dying for you so you can have life. That's what he calls us to do. This was brought home um, to me um, in, in recent days. We've been listening to a, um, a story uh, it's it's a, a biography called Evidence Not Seen by Darlene Deibler. And Darlene was a, a missionary in the mid-40s, early 40s and, and mid-40s in Indonesia and in Borneo. And as, a, as she, was, she was recently married, she'd only lived with her husband for about a, a year and a half when she was taken and he was taken as prisoners of war in Indonesia by the Japanese army. And she spent the next four years in a prisoner of war camp. And the leader of the camp, Mr. Yamaji, was an incredibly cruel man. He would enforce quotas on the prisoners because they had a problem with flies in the camp. And so he would require every prisoner to catch at least 100 flies every day and bring them to him to show that they had done not only their work assignment, but they had done their part to capture the flies and kill the flies. And if you didn't meet your quota, you were beaten with a cane. And the other atrocities that are described there are, are terrible until one day, Mr. Yamaji comes to tell or has Darlene come to his office. And there in his office, he finally tells her that Months before, her husband had died in the other POW camp. And her heart was, of course, broken. Broken by the death of her husband. Broken even more because what she could focus in on was the cruelty of not even being, not even telling her. Not letting her know. But in that moment, Darlene was prompted by the Holy Spirit to show Mr. Yamaji 
the love of Christ. She told him the reason that she had hope, even though she had lost her husband, she didn't grieve like the rest of us because she believed in Jesus Christ who came and died for her and gives us the hope of the resurrection. And she shared the good news of Jesus with Mr. Yamaji. Mr. Yamaji was a bit overwhelmed and left the room and went into his office and never said a thing. But something began to change to the point that a couple years later when she was deathly ill and she was being interrogated by the secret police, he went and interceded for her and brought her food. The man who had been incredibly cruel, something had changed inside. And she came to find out years after the war that Mr. Yamaji was not only sorrowful for how he had treated others, he had been sentenced to death because he had executed a man in the men's prison camp before he came to the women's camp. But because of his kindness to Darlene, his sentence was commuted. But years later, Darlene heard that Mr. Yamaji had actually been on the radio in Japan sharing the gospel with his fellow citizens. You see, that's how powerful loving our enemies is. God can use it to allow us in the most dark of circumstances to shine as light. Well, there's a lot more I'd love to be able to share, but we we really just don't have the, the time today, and I want us to celebrate communion together. When we come to the Lord's table, when we come to communion, It's a time to remember and reflect on what Jesus Christ has done for us. And he has us partake of the bread and of the cup to be not just symbols that represent the bread representing his body, which was given for us, and the cup representing his blood, which was poured out for us. But he has us partake in this way to to remind us that he is with us. When we eat of the bread, we are physically taking in a reminder that Jesus is the bread of life. He is the one who sustains you and I. He is the one who gives us strength to accomplish all he calls us to do. And when we drink of the cup, we drink of remembrance that not only has he forgiven us, he's clothed us in his righteousness. What God sees in you and I because of our faith in Christ is not our failure, not our guilt, not our condemnation. He sees a daughter and a son who are righteous, adopted children that he loves and whom he takes great pleasure. And I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of that regularly. So the scripture tells us that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and blessed it. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. In remembrance of him, we ask your blessing upon this bread. Lord, we recognize that it is a a sign, it is a symbol, but may it point us to the substance of you, Jesus of who you are and of what you have done in us and for us.
So we ask that you would bless this bread and that as each person partakes of this bread, may they be reminded of your deep love and also of your promise that you are with us always, even to the end of the age. Lord, let the taste in our mouth be a reminder that you are good and that you keep your promises. The scripture goes on to say that Jesus took the cup and he said to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant. It is my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of many. Drink it in remembrance of me. He blessed the cup and so we ask, Lord, your blessing upon this time of communion together. We ask your blessing upon the cup. May it remind us of your cleansing, of your sacrifice, of your love. May it also remind us, Lord, that you have made us like you. You have given us the power and presence of your Holy Spirit within us, and you have clothed us with your righteousness. May we live as imitators of you, Lord Jesus. May our lives look like you. May others, when they see us loving when they see us caring, when they see us standing with those who are broken, who are hurt, may they see you, Lord Jesus. This we ask in the great and mighty name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. I'm going to invite those who are serving to come and to serve the Lord's Supper the band will be served first, and then we will invite you to come and partake of communion together.